Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Word Processing. My name is Andrew, I'm one of the pastors at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario, and I'm joined today with Josiah, the other pastor. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. We're going to talk about Passion Week, about Holy Week. It is Good Friday and Easter Sunday this coming week, Josiah, and we thought we'd spend some time today talking a little bit about these pivotal events in the church calendar and spend some time talking about the crucifixion, the suffering that Jesus went through, and how we can prepare for that, how we think about these holidays or these celebrations at times, this grief that we maybe experience as we think about Good Friday perhaps as well. Josiah, as Good Friday and Easter are drawing nearer, and you've started to think about the passion of Christ, maybe we'll start with the text itself. Are there elements of his suffering maybe that have stood out to you this year in unique ways? It is unique in that this is something of a roller coaster in a week, right? Mm -hmm. You talked about the Passion Week. It is up and down. It is all over the place. There is celebration because we know the resurrection is coming. And yet at the same time, there is some deep grief here. And there's the added layer of it being normal. We go through this every year. We know this story. And sometimes more than once a year, hopefully, we talk about the resurrection (laughs) more than once a year, not just reserved for one Sunday a year. So it's hard sometimes to think about this in ways that are fresh, or, and that's the terrible word to use, but because the word is always relevant and fresh in that way, but to protect my heart, I guess, against being calloused and treating this as just mundane, that becomes the the trick, I think. Yeah. And then there's the challenge in there of like, we don't want to just go through the motions or take it for granted, even though we've heard it a hundred times. And yet we also don't want to approach like novelty for novelty's sake either. We're like, Absolutely. oh, we got to make this super unique thing. Like we've never done it before because we don't want to miss the importance and the reason that we go through it every year. And thankfully, the word does this work for us, which is excellent. When we focus too much on our emotions and try to ramp ourselves up to celebrate Easter and Good Friday, make sure that our emotions are in line, then we are starting to err. I think. But if we go back, like you just invited us to, back to the text, the text can cultivate an importance, a significance, an awesomeness, a weight, and yes, even emotion. Although emotion is a byproduct, we don't seek the emotion. It comes out of an understanding of the truth that the text lays before us. And so I like the the question points us back to the text, back to the text. What in the, the accounts, the gospel accounts of the passion of Christ maybe struck you as new this mm-hmm. year. And I think that was your question. Now I've just hijacked your question and taken it for myself. Well, and I'll give credit where credit is due because you came up with the questions this week. <laughs> I'm not going to take that, but oh, you, I'll you present put it your own spin own. on it. Yeah, yeah, like that. Well, and this is, as we kind of go into this too, I think what's really interesting is the passion narrative is one of those very few stories that all four gospel accounts include. I mean, even Jesus's birth is not recorded yeah. in two of them. And yet this part is clearly quintessential to everyone's telling of the gospel account. Yeah. And so as I was reading through it this year and meditating on this particular portion of the life of Jesus and his ministry, there's a couple of things that struck me fresh this year. Not that I hadn't noticed them before, but for some reason this year, they stood out to me. And certainly the physical suffering is always at the fore. Like that is just brutal, brutal, brutal. And the more I understand what it was actually like, the more you read about it, the more I realize how it was even more brutal than I can imagine. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. 
But something that struck me this year was the suffering Christ endured, I want to say almost relationally, the loneliness, how he was abandoned by those he loved. And for some reason, I don't know exactly why, but that really stuck out to me this year. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 22, it's labeled in my Bible, the title added by the translators is the Lord's Supper. And we know this scene very, very well. But it says in verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And so there's this community feel. These are the men he has walked the earth and ministered alongside and poured into for months and months and months and months now, right? And he's reclining at this table and he said to them, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And for some reason that stuck out to me this year. He's longed to have this Passover with these men before he suffers for some reason. It's been on his heart. He wants to spend this time with them, certainly to teach them some things, but also I think there there is this, not nostalgia, but a, a weight to sharing this meal of remembrance with the people he loves most on earth. And he gives the reason, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He knows this is the last time that he has to use this. So right in this context, there is this relational weight that he loves these men. And that's what makes this next part stick out to me so much, Hmm. that after he takes the cup and he takes the drink, things that we celebrate every week at Oak Ridge, he says this in verse 21, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. And that betraying me is that participle. It's going on at this moment. It is currently happening. He's not going to betray me. He is in the process of doing it right now. And just the order of those events strikes me. He longs to share this meal with the men he loves, including the one he knows is at that moment betraying him. And he eats the meal with them. He passes the cup to Judas. He breaks bread with Judas and then points out that he's going to be betrayed by this man that he's walked this earth with and loves. And then later on in the account, you know, he, they leave the upper room and, and they go to the garden and they're having this conversation in the garden where Jesus is praying and he rebukes them for falling asleep when they should be keeping watch. And then it says in verse 47, the same chapter in Luke, chapter 22, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12, so the same 12 he sat down with at the table, was preceding them. So Judas is leading this procession. He's out in front and he approached Jesus to kiss him. It's almost like he leaned in, you know, the, the brotherly, the kiss of fellowship. But Jesus, verse 48, said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? To me, it just gives me chills. Like again, there's this, certainly the physical suffering is something that strikes me every year. But for some reason, this week and and the week prior, what struck me was this relational tearing. These people that he loved, that he ministered to, that he poured into, all the while there's one betraying him. And that betrayer comes under the guise of fellowship, this faux fellowship. And Jesus knows what's happening all along. I know that just struck me this year, that that hurt, that weight, in addition to all the other weight that Jesus Mm -hmm. is going to carry. There's that added element as well, that I can't a little bit relate to. We have relational tensions. I can't as much relate to having the wrath of God poured out upon me, the sins of the world. I can't relate to those things. But being betrayed or being hurt by people, I can relate to that a little bit at least. And so that struck me a little bit this year. I don't know, but what about you? Well, I just want to even just continue with that train of thought because I think it goes then even further in the fact that then the rest of the 12 scatter. Yeah. And Peter betrays him and he knows, or not betrays him, denies him, sorry. And they all leave him and he's left by himself as he then goes through the the trial, the mock trial in many ways. And then as he's hung on the cross amongst strangers 
and man, just the entire separation and isolation from all those that he's been connected with. Loneliness is brutal. And we all know that it's a brutal thing. And Jesus experienced this loneliness at this moment. And it obviously climaxes with the father turning his face away. And there's Mm -hmm. a loneliness there that, again, I cannot even begin to comprehend what that was like. But the horizontal, the relational loneliness that he felt as his closest followers scattered, like you said, again, there's just a weight to that that frames the entire passion to me. Not only is everything else brutal and tragic, but underneath all of that is this crushing loneliness where the people who said that they would always be with him, Peter said, I'll fight for you. Mm -hmm. I'll never turn away from you. Even they ran away. And again, I read those accounts. And I say, man, I think I might've run too. Like I, I, I can't even blame them. That's a, a terrible time. But again, I just think of what Jesus was enduring at that moment. And it struck me this year. And it's just another layer of weight to uh, this week. Yeah. There's a reason that even in, you know, the prison system, like being isolated then further is a punishment because being separated from people, even people that you don't care about but being separated entirely like that can be such a yeah it's it's psychological torture torture that goes as well as the physical that he was about to endure and he's working up towards that yeah for me i specifically tried to look for things that stood out because i maybe haven't noticed them before and so kind of following that same train of thought it's it's interesting as jesus walks into the garden in matthew's account it acknowledges the fact that he began to be grieved and distressed as he's going to pray um, in Matthew chapter 26. And one of the things that has often stood out to me about the passion narrative is that prayer that Jesus prays in Gethsemane. And it's in most of the gospel accounts here of, you know, Father, if you're willing, if there's any way to accomplish this, that's not me dying, take this cup from me. And I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because I think this has to be one of the purest demonstrations of Jesus's humanity of like, I'm willing to do this. You know, he says, but not my will, let thine be done. And yet in that moment, he's still asking, is there any way to not do this? He's grieved and he is distressed in the process of preparing to pray. What I find really interesting or what stood out to me this year actually was the one account that doesn't have Jesus praying in the garden is John's gospel. And yet he does include one specific detail that does still relate to that. In John chapter 18, around the same time you were just talking about the betrayal of Judas betraying Jesus. And there's that infamous scene where Peter draws a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And most of the gospel accounts, the other three, focus on the fact that Jesus then says, what are you doing arresting me now? You're coming at me with swords and clubs. I've been in the temple every day. You could have arrested me. But John's account mentions this in John 18, verse 11. So Peter's just cut off the the slaves or the servant's ear. And verse 11 says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, am I not to drink it? Here we have the resolve of that prayer. And when as he prays the prayer, let this cup pass from me or take this from me, not my will, but yours be done, we see the resolve because he then is killed. But I think this this single verse here in John is so interesting because it points to Jesus actually acknowledging, I need to drink this cup. I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath. I asked for him to take it. He was not willing to take it in his will. And so don't fight back because is this not what is supposed to happen? It's amazing that he knew what was coming 
I try to get my head around that as well. There's one thing to endure suffering when it surprises you and it still hurts and you got to reel from it and try to find your new equilibrium. But imagine knowing that suffering is coming for years and marching steadily toward it with that pressure and that pain on the horizon mounting and growing, knowing as it draws near. That in and of itself would be a, a form of torture and suffering, this anticipation in his humanity, like you said. Oh, totally. I mean, we get a fraction of that when we know there is something looming, a difficult conversation, a, a scary event, a sad day, something that is coming. And yet he had that in his mind. He was preparing for it. And as he himself says multiple times, this was all to fulfill prophecy. Even the way he was arrested and betrayed was to fulfill prophecy. This is something that he had been preparing for. And yet, how do you prepare for that? It's very interesting, too, if you've ever had the privilege of speaking with someone that has been given by doctors a terminal diagnosis, that the end is near. And it's interesting when you talk to them about how they will describe that things come into focus very, very quickly. The things that don't matter don't matter anymore in a big way. And the things that matter are all that's on the tip of their tongue. Right? They want to use those final days, weeks, months in the exact way that they want to use them, in the ways that mean the most. I think it's telling that after you know the garden scene where it's clear that this is the will of the Father and Christ is going to accept that this is going to happen, it's interesting to see what he talks about with his disciples after that. Because they're clarifying, like, here's what matters. Not that Jesus was ever frivolous with his talk, but he goes into that upper room and, and some of the things that he's saying as the cross looms, right? Mm -hmm. I know the upper room is before Gethsemane, but you know what I mean? As it gets closer, what he's talking about, how he's telling them to be servants, how he's telling them uh, that the Holy Spirit's coming, how he's telling them to pursue unity, you know, between the, the brethren. There's just some things that come into severe clarity with Jesus' ministry as the cross gets ever closer. And there's so much content, especially, I mean, in, in all the accounts, but especially in, in John's account, I find between that last meal and the arrest there is so much content where if you have like a red letter bible it's it's all red it's just jesus teaching his kind of final words what's most important to his disciples as he prepares to to leave them mm -hmm. temporarily the other one that really stood out to me is another kind of i don't want to say throwaway verse but one that i've kind of like i acknowledge that i've kind of maybe skipped over or not really thought about before and it's actually kind of related to what you were talking about with regards to loneliness one thing that i'm really have always kind of been sensitive to is when other people gang up on someone when in any situation in a bullying scenario whatever you want to call it when there's people in positions of power that are together working against someone who is in many ways like helpless and i think we i mean we see that obviously as jesus is beaten as he's mocked as, as all this happens but in luke's account in chapter 23 there's this little part where jesus before pilate and then Pilate realizes that Jesus is actually from Herod's realm and he sends him to Herod and Herod has his little mockery fest and then sends him back to Pilate. And there's a verse here that I don't recall ever remember reading before. And I'm sure I, I bet you I can guess what it is. I bet you can. I bet you can guess. I think we're just twinsies. Is it when they become friends? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have that written down too? I've underlined. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, so it's Luke chapter 23, verse 12. Yeah. And so Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day for previously they had been enemies towards each other like what an interesting detail and we know that luke is the detail guy right he's a doctor he likes to focus on but what a detail that these yeah. two leaders of men were enemies with one another and they bonded together 
over the mocking of our Lord. Mm -hmm. Like that is what connected them. That was the thing that got them to put their differences aside was the, the mocking of Jesus. Well, one thing we can conclude from that is we probably spend too much time together. Yeah, so probably. We're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're underlining the same things in our Bibles and stuff yeah. now. But for sure, that is a heavy, heavy realization. that, And it seems as they pass him back and forth, Christ back and forth, I get the impression, at least when I read, I don't know about you, but that they just assume this guy doesn't really matter. It's just another case. It's not that big of a deal. Pass. I don't want to deal with this. You know, Pass him off to, to Herod, pass him back to Pilate, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that big of a deal. And yet, it's clearly a big deal to the Jews. Mm -hmm. They're shouting the whole time. One of the things that I had uh, noted about things about the passion that had stood out to me this time through was the culmination of what you're describing, this back and forth, him going through all these trials and the constant, wicked, malicious presence of the leaders of Israel. We're not just talking about Joe Israelite and Jane Israelite. We're talking about the brass. We're talking about their leaders, the people that were supposed to be shepherding God's people toward Yahweh. They're standing there the whole time following Jesus as he's passed from leader to leader to leader. And in chapter 23, again, when he finally goes back to Pilate for the last time, and Pilate's saying, I don't see enough wrong here to call for the execution. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll whip them like crazy and send them back. You know, And there's, they're just in verse 18, it says, and they cried out all together saying, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. They want this known murderer, this known insurrectionist instead. And then in verse 21, they said, but they kept calling out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Again, it just struck me. And I know that is not surprising that the calls to crucify the Lord would stand out in the Passion account. But what struck me, I guess, is that this is the leaders of the nation that Yahweh has shepherded for centuries and protected for centuries and promised a land and a kingdom to and kept that promise for centuries. And a king. And a king and <laughs> and sustained them and guarded them and disciplined them. And that this Jesus came as their king, offering them this kingdom. And still after he was rejected and spat on and abused, it even says that, he looks at Israel, he looks at Jerusalem and says, oh, I just long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. He still has this heart for his special people. And here they are shouting, not just kill him, not just throw him in prison, not just disrespect him, but nail him to a tree so he can die the most gruesome, shameful, yeah. yeah, undignified death that we have ever invented in humanity. We want to talk about hard-heartedness. I can't find a place in scripture where there is more hard-heartedness than in those words, crucify him, crucify him. So again, that just struck me again. And who are, they, who are they turning to there? They're turning to Pil- They're turning to the Romans, the people who have oppressed them, that they've been calling out and wanting to. They wanted that king that would release them from the oppression of the Romans. And yet here they turn to the people who are oppressing them to use them to do their dirty work, yeah. right? And even to the point that, you know, they won't kill him themselves even. But no, you need to you need to crucify him. I'm not good with song titles, but there's that one song we sometimes sing that says, and ashamed I heard my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. You know that song? Yeah. And that line there gets me almost every time. That as I sit here and read this, crucify him, crucify him, and they mock him. They put the crown on his head. They beat him. And even as he's hanging, dying, they're shaking their heads at him. Oh, you're the Christ. Come down. Save yourself save us and they're just mocking him right ashamed i hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers lest i ever look at them and say these idiots i would not have done that i would not have run like peter i would not have done these things lest i say those things i want to be 
quick to acknowledge my sinfulness and put myself in the text and understand that I probably would have run too. Mm-hmm. I probably would have been shouting at. And if nothing else, it was my sin that held him there. The song goes on to say, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So to really personalize it, while this account is not about me, my sin makes it about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to see the way that these people, whether it was Herod and Pilate, whether it was the leaders of Israel, they bonded together over the suffering of someone else, over the beating, mocking of someone else. And I think that stands out in the way that we see that in our world today, that people like to bond over mocking God or the idea of God. They bond over mocking anyone who would follow God or believe in God. That's almost the cool thing to do, right, is is make fun of people who are quote-unquote religious and and that's that same kind of dynamic of, hey, let's get past all the things that make us different so we can make fun of those those bigoted Christians or, or what have you. Now, lest we forget that the tomb was empty. So we've talked about the passion. As we discuss this today, we are talking about Good Friday and we are leading into Good Friday. But before we meet again, you and I meet again, well, we'll be together before then. Sure. But before we have another conversation <laughs> like this, Easter happens as well. We're going to celebrate the resurrection. And... We have to acknowledge, again, that all this suffering, the death, the wrath of God, for our sake, in our place condemned he stood, it led to the empty tomb, that God put his stamp of approval on the sacrifice that Jesus endured and accepted the payment for all our sins. And if you've ever been in my office, you know that on my desktop, on my computer, I have an old painting from the late 1800s, and it's a painting of Peter and John, the apostles, running toward the empty tomb. And I love looking at the painting. It's been on my desktop for years and years because the way the artist painted their eyes, even you can see, and I, and I read this in Mark 16, this short account of the resurrection, when they're running, you know, and then same with Luke, when they're running and John outpaces Peter. I think it's in Luke. I think it's, pretty sure. I think it's in John. Is it in John? John, oh, yeah, John is like, includes it. Oh, right. it's the one who Jesus right. loved happened to be fast. That's right. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't name himself, <laughs> yes. but who's the fastest one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like, I always wondered as I read that account in John, what are they looking for? They've heard that he's risen. Mm-hmm. And so they're sprinting to this tomb to see if it's so. And you can see for? in John's eyes in the painting, at least there's this, this aching that he wants it to be true so badly, but he still doesn't fully understand all that has taken place and must have had to take place. And then in Peter's eyes, you see a bit of more sorrow because he's the one who denied. And this is before he's restored mm-hmm. on the beach. And so he is aching to see the Lord. And he is, as we saw in John, when he dives out of the boat, when he sees the Lord on the beach. He does want to see the Lord, but there is some hurt in his heart because he knows what he's done. And so when we talk about the empty tomb, you know, how do, and this is going to be spiritualization of the the text, a spiritualization of the text a bit, but I, I think of how would I have run to the tomb? And even when I think about resurrection now, how do I approach resurrection? Is it with this, this longing to see the Lord? And do I ache to see him when I am raised? And, and do I celebrate the victory that that resurrection sealed and represents and guarantees in the future. And again, thinking about how these initial apostles ran toward the, the tomb and how we can there then approach the resurrection as well. It's so life-giving. And I mean, there's no greater truth. This of first importance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And it is of, again, first importance. It is primary. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, how if this is not so, then we are most What's to be pitied. Yeah. yeah. What an important reminder of, as we talked about earlier, how we can kind of like 
lose the focus or just make it commonplace because we celebrate it every year, we celebrate it every week with communion, and yet to get back in the mindset of what what would it look like? What were they running towards? And would I have had the same awe and wonder? And, and what would my have my heart have been in that place? And, and how do I gain that back now? Yeah. And remember how important it is to run towards that empty tomb. Well, decide with the last few minutes we have today, how about we talk about specifically our family, maybe traditions or the things that you and your family or me and my family do around this time of year to prepare to focus on the death and resurrection of Christ. Any family devotions or, or things that you want to keep uh, with regards to family worship or, or traditions in your household? Yeah, as will surprise very few people listening to this, I'm pretty boring. And so the things that I do uh, to prepare are not that surprising. Nothing out of the ordinary. I will read the Passion account. Uh, we will read it as a family that weekend. The songs we listen to seem to center around the power of the cross a little bit more than normal, the victory of the resurrection. Just those normal things, my prayers, because it's on my mind more perhaps now than it is throughout the year, maybe to my shame, my prayers are more centered around those realities. As we deal in a church with people who are suffering and who are in some cases dying or enduring great trials, the focus of the resurrection is so potent that this is not the end. Mm Mm-hmm. As much as we endure, as much as our life is a vapor, and some people are experiencing that now more than other people are experiencing it, the resurrection is the solution, and the Lord provided it. One of my favorite quotes from D.A. Carson, I think it's original with him, he said, I'm not suffering from anything a good resurrection won't fix. Hmm. And that is our hope, that because the tomb is empty, we too shall live. And so again, Super boring in some ways. (laughs) Nothing surprising. The things I do to prepare my heart for Good Friday, for this week, for Easter, they get a little bit more focused on the contents of this week, but they're just the normal means of grace. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah, no, I'd say similar things. I think it's important to, I like to remember that there is four different accounts Mm. of the passion and to to spend some time maybe in each of them comparing or, or seeing what's what each Biblical author decided to include, led by the Spirit. Good Friday service has always been super, and Easter, of course, but you think of Good Friday maybe, or I do, maybe a little more because it's out of the norm, and that's always been a really important morning. And for some reason, this is not required by Scripture at all, but something that I've always found that I really like to do is on Good Friday then afternoon is spend some time out, you know, going for a walk as a family. Or we used to, when I was in youth group back in the day, go for like a, a hike together and spend some time outdoors and trying to find some some quiet or some solitude and, and really taking time to then, you know, in the morning we reflect amongst other people and with our church family, but then spend some time really reflecting on it myself as well in the afternoon. And, and something I really appreciated from my childhood is that my mom always made Easter really special. And we could talk for, I'm sure, a bunch of time about the commercialization and the candy and, and all that stuff. But to me, that was a good way of pointing then to the truth of why we celebrate. So, you know, I had the, whatever it was, a chocolate hunt on Easter Sunday. And that was really exciting as a kid. But that was how my mom got me excited to then point to the truth of this is why we celebrate. This is why we have a little extra candy today. Why it's okay to have chocolate before breakfast today, even though that is all just westernized commercial crap. (laughs) It's like, because we have hope, because Jesus rose again, today is special. Mm -hmm. And I just really, you know, as we're thinking through family worship and 
as our daughter's getting, you know, a little more coherent, I guess maybe is the right word, getting a little older. And I think about traditions that we want to set up too. Like I want her to grow up knowing that Easter is important and worth celebrating. And even if that's because it starts out with her thinking that the chocolate before breakfast is cool, I want that to be able to point to the fact that this is a day worth celebrating and being joyous and and having a smile on our face as we remember the truth of the empty tomb. And because we don't get to run towards it like John and Peter did, but we do get to still celebrate that truth. Mm. Josiah, thank you for chatting and taking the time to reflect on Holy Week. And listener, I hope that this can be a, a valuable week for you as well. There's a few days left by the time we post this before Good Friday and Easter. You know, we'll have services here at Oak Ridge and online uh, at 10.30 a.m. on both of those days, and we'd love to see you. And if you listen somewhere else, please find a local church and spend some time with them reflecting together, gathering together, and, and spending some time celebrating what all this weekend is really about. Thank you, as always, for listening, and until next time, go with grace and peace. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.